So please take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews 12, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not resisted yet to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten, the, and have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. And what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which you have all become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we might share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, nor, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, Afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The Lord's word. Good morning. We are in a sermon series in the book of Hebrews asking how Christ is the answer to our doubts. And one major doubt we face is, if God loves us, why is our life so hard? Or if God is good, why am I suffering? And our passage today gives us our answer so that we can face suffering. I don't want to spend a minute explaining why that's important. Because when suffering or tragedy happens, we all need a storyline to make sense of life. What we believe life is about will determine how we face suffering. So if our story for life is to be happy and fulfilled and express ourselves, then all we can do with suffering is to avoid it. But if our story for life is that there's some greater meaning and purpose, that our lives are part of something bigger, that completely transforms how we respond to every life event. If we have the right story, we'll be able to face anything. If we have the wrong story, we'll crumble. So today's passage gives us three things uh, that we need in order to face suffering with courage and strength. We have a race, we have a champion, and we have a father. So a race a champion, and a father. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would um, open our hearts to hear the goodness of your truth, the beauty of who you are. Um, God, reveal more of yourself to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, so first, we have a race. So the author of Hebrews says, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And the word for race is very interesting. The Greek word is agona, 
from which we get the word agony. So it means a conflict, a fight, a struggle. So it's a race, yes, but it's not like little kid track. It's a grueling race against fierce competitors. And some people think of this as meaning the pinnacle event in the Olympics. It's the most totalizing race there was. It's just the end of everything. And so Hebrew says we have a race. Life is a race. Life is a struggle. And now some of you probably think, well, I don't need Greek to know that life is a struggle. I know that life is hard. Okay, yes. Remember that life is a race. It's not just a meaningless slog. It means there's a trajectory to our lives. There's somewhere that we're going. Life is not just meaningless tragedy after meaningless tragedy. There's a purpose. Life is hard, yes. But it's hard because we're heading toward the prize. So you might be wondering, okay, where are we going? Well, the passage starts with therefore, right? And, and that's a clue that what he's about to say follows what he just said. And the last chapter, chapter 11, last week's sermon, was all about the hope for a better resurrection. Right, so he gave these amazing stories of people who lived with radical faith amidst persecution and suffering because they were waiting for a better resurrection. They were waiting for the new heavens and the new earth, for God to raise them to perfect, indestructible life, and for God to wipe away every tear. That's where we're heading. So when we say that life is a journey to God, that's what we mean. Life is a journey into an eternal, perfect, intimate relationship with the God who created all things and who, in perfect justice and love, will make all things right. That's where we're going. So the author says, because life is a race, because life is an agonizing trial, we must lay aside every weight. The image is easy enough to understand, right? If you're running a grueling race, then don't be hindered by unnecessary weight. Right? So can you imagine if before a big race, we go to Brandy Gill and we say, hey, for this cross-country event, can you strap these boulders to your back? Right? Or have you ever been to a marathon and there's these people who are dressed up in ridiculous costumes? Right? Like they're dressed up like Big Bird or something crazy. They're obviously not going for a personal best for this race. I think, okay. You know, so, right? so we're told, lay aside weights that get in the way. Well, what are the weights? Well, the author tells us that sin weighs us down. Now, remember, the author is addressing people who are suffering. They're being persecuted. They're suffering. And he says sin is keeping them from facing suffering well. Their sinful responses are keeping them from running the race well, and they need to throw them off. And the the author mentions some of these throughout the letter. Um, So let's look at a couple of what these things might be. So first... There's fear that leads them to shrink back. Now, fear is a very natural emotion or feeling. And being afraid is not sinful. But what you do with fear can be. Okay, so I tell my sons all the time, courage is not the absence of fear. That might be foolishness. Courage is conquering fear. So the sin here is letting fear conquer them. And so rather than face suffering, rather than dive forward in the race toward the better resurrection, they let their fear cripple them and they shrink back. What's the problem? They trust their emotions more than they trust God. God tells them, follow me 
and I will give you a better resurrection. But their fear says, you can't trust God. You have to get out of this situation. So they need to throw off their fear and conquer it with the truth of God's promises. Second, there's discouragement that defiles others. So again, discouragement is a very understandable, natural, emotional response to life when it's not going the way it should. But as with fear, what we do with it matters. So they are letting their discouragement fester and it is hindering others. Their discouragement is not only keeping them from running the race well, it's keeping others from running well too. So I'm reminded of uh, Psalm 73, where the psalmist is really, really frustrated with life and with the injustices that he sees. But at one point he says, if I had spoken out and said what I was really feeling, I would have betrayed the generation around me. You know, it's one thing to breathe out your discouragement to God. It's another to bring down others. So they have to throw off their discouragement. Stop bringing down others with them. And finally, there's a desire for immediate gratification as a way to escape the present suffering. Now, I think this is a huge problem for us. Right? How often do we self-medicate right? when we're overwhelmed and we're anxious and so we say binge watch Netflix just to get our mind off of it? I know that over here, right? We self-medicate with Netflix or overeating or getting in someone's bed or watching things you know you're going to regret later, but right now you just need to get your mind off the thoughts in your head. And immediate gratification is not the way you run a marathon. It's not how you win a grueling race. So, yeah, it feels good now, but instant gratification is not training you to be a winner. It's training you to be a weak, lazy, spiritual mess. So retreating to self-medicating with Netflix is training you to be a spiritual quitter. Sharing gossip, because it feels good, is training you to be a spiritual quitter. Venting your anger is training you to be a spiritual quitter. Scrolling on your screen as a way of just getting away from it all is training you to be a spiritual quitter. So, in particular, sins like these, fear, discouragement, instant gratification, will keep us from facing suffering effectively. More generally, we need to throw aside all sorts of sin all the time. We don't wait until we're in the marathon to start training. Okay, why? Because sin clings to us. Notice he says, We cast aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. If you let sin sin cling to you now, you will not be able to cast it aside later. Sin is not like a hat sitting on your head that you can just take off and drop when it's time. Sin is like a thousand cat hairs clinging to your black sweater. Sin is like a tick that has drilled into your body. Sin is like an animal with claws that refuses to let go. We're training for and running an agonizing and important struggle. We need to be vigilant, even tyrannical, in casting aside sin. We're told in other places that sin is like a wild animal, like a ravenous lion that desires to consume you. 
You know, sometimes people say, oh, you know, I don't want to be legalistic about this sin. Why not? No, what you don't want to be legalistic about is your salvation. You don't earn your salvation. But legalism is not a problem with regards to sin. Take the risk with sin. Take the risk that you're being legalistic. Because I'm willing to risk being legalistic with sin rather than let a lion devour me. If the choice is maybe I'm, you know, being a little too careful with regard to sin, but a lion is not going to bite my head off. I'm willing to take that chance. So. We have a new storyline for our life. Life is a race. Life is a struggle. It's an agonizing struggle to reach the better resurrection. Second, we have a champion. The author of Hebrews tells us that we have a race and to run the race with endurance, to fix our eyes on Jesus who is. And this word is a really interesting word. Uh, If you look at lots of different translations, you'll see different words at this point. And when you see different translations using different words, it means that the original Greek word is very rich. There's not any one English word that can contain all the meanings. Okay? Um, And so we need to use lots of different words to get across. What does it mean? So Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our founder, our champion, our author, all translating the same word. The image is of a warrior who steps into the ring and takes your place and faces a foe for you as your substitute. So think of David and Goliath. They were both champions in this sense of the word. Goliath stepped forward on behalf of the Philistines and he said, fight me and that determines the war. And no Israelite was willing to step forward and fight Goliath. But David stepped forward. He takes the place of all Israel. And he faces Goliath himself. And he defeated Goliath himself. And David's victory meant victory for all of Israel. Goliath's defeat, defeat for all of Philistia. All of Israel defeated all of Philistia because of David stepping forward in their place. That's a champion. He takes our place. He fights a foe. And Jesus is our champion. And only Christianity says that salvation has been accomplished for us. Only Christianity says that the foundation of our faith is a champion who took our place, won the battle for us as our substitute. If all we knew was that life was a race, that life was a struggle, that would give us a storyline, but it wouldn't necessarily give us encouragement. Right? In fact... Almost every religion basically gives a storyline that is, life is a struggle and you must succeed. I make this point often, so I'll be relatively brief, right? Whether there's an eightfold path or seven pillars or social justice to accomplish, every religion says, this is what you must do. Accomplish this task, climb this mountain, achieve these goals, that's what life is about. But Christianity is the only religion in history that doesn't start or stop there. Because Christianity says we have a race, but we also have a finisher. We have somebody who has completed the race for us and who will guarantee our victory. Life is a race we will ultimately finish. If you belong to Jesus, if you follow Jesus, you are guaranteed to complete the race. 
Life is a journey to God, and we get there by following Jesus because Jesus has already done everything we need to do to get there. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And if you follow him, you will get to the end. Because he's not just our example, though he is, but he's the very source. He's the author of our salvation. And he will bring it to completion. He's the finisher. He's the perfecter. This means that Jesus is actively at work in you to accomplish your salvation, to bring the life of faith to its complete conclusion. He's bringing the life of faith to its complete conclusion. That's what he's doing. That's where your trust and hope is. In Jesus' faithfulness at every point. And so the writer says, so that you do not grow weary or disheartened, consider his sufferings. And you could read this and misunderstand and think that what he's saying is, quit your sniveling. Stop whining. Jesus went through worse. That's true. He did. But that's not it. He's saying, look, if you're going to finish the race, you need to go the way of Jesus. What you're experiencing is not out of the ordinary. You're not off the path. It's not beyond what you should expect. You aren't doing something wrong. In other words, when we struggle with sin and suffering, we often feel like we're at the end of ourselves and we couldn't possibly keep going. Nobody could ask us to put more sin to death. Nobody could ask us to bear more suffering. And so we're tempted to quit. We're tempted to think, I've gone as far as I'm supposed to. This is not the path that I'm supposed to be on. But the author is saying no. He's saying, how do you know what it might cost to fight sin? Well, look what it meant for Jesus. How do you know what it might cost to bear scorn? Look at what it meant for Jesus. This is an encouragement. Because you may be in a really, really hard situation. But that doesn't surprise God. Satan throws something really bad at you. That doesn't surprise God. And that means whatever the case, Jesus can somehow meet you in that situation because he himself faced the full spectrum of human pain and suffering. So we have a race and we have a champion. Finally, we have a father. So we've learned that suffering is part of the agonizing race of life. We've learned that if we follow Jesus, we're guaranteed to reach the end. We still might need a story to make sense of why we're suffering. And Hebrew says that for the Christian, suffering is never punishment, but only discipline. Suffering is never punishment, but only discipline. Now, what is discipline? Because this can be controversial. Um, some people confuse discipline and punishment. So what's the difference? So punishment is, uh, quote, pain of some kind as retribution for something that's been done. Okay, punishment is retribution. Discipline is also pain of some kind brought into a person's life to correct a problem. So it's correction. Now, I don't want you to get tripped up on pain and think, oh, I'm only talking about physical pain, because that's not it at all. Pain can mean restrictions or being grounded or taking away privileges or failing an exam. Um, these all bring pain. I discipline my students all the time. 
Other professors punish their students, but I only discipline them. Are any? uh, I think I'm safe. Um, So these all are, you know, bringing pain because they're undesirable or uncomfortable or unwanted, right? But the point of discipline is to correct course. And the Greek word, I've been really having fun with Greek these days, is paideia, which is where we get the word pediatrician and pedialyte and pedia everything. It's a word that means raising up a child. Okay? It's a word that means correction or chastisement with the purpose of nurturing a child. So the goal is to nurture through correction. So discipline is an act of nurture. Now, I'm not going to have this long conversation. Some people think children don't need discipline, um, but they just need nurturing. Um, The best historical example of this is the French philosopher Rousseau. Um, And he believed that children were born innocent and uncorrupted. And he believed that every problem begins outside of the child, right? It's all society. The child is perfect and pure. Um, And I used to think that meant that Rousseau didn't have any children. (laughs) Turns out he had five. And he put them all up for adoption. (laughs) Because apparently he got the five that were broken. They're all broken, right? It's impossible to raise, for example, a a two- or a three-year-old, honestly, without recognizing that a child's heart tilts towards folly. Okay? (laughs) If left to our own course, every one of us would be entitled, selfish, vengeful, self-centered. Without driving the folly out of our hearts, what we do is we learn how to cover up the deep urges. Right? We learn how to behave in polite society so that you know, we don't get found out. Uh, but we don't stop being entitled and self-centered. Right? We just know how to spin it in socially appropriate ways. Right? Or, or how not to get caught. Um, you know, there's been a lot of news recently about people who were very successful, but then they got caught. turns out they were entitled and self-centered. It was still there. So discipline is a visceral reminder to, say, a child or to us that what is naturally in our hearts needs to be driven out. And we need it because just reason isn't enough. I mean, you might think, I don't need to discipline my child. I can just reason with them how to act, and they'll listen and respond. And your child is made of different stuff than mine um, and different stuff than I'm made of. Right? Because my problem isn't lack of reason. I, I know what's right and wrong. Uh, usually I do right, uh, you do wrong, not because I'm being unreasonable or because I'm misinformed. If only I knew what was right and wrong. No, I usually do wrong because I want to do wrong. My heart pulls against what I quote know is right. Because obedience is not just about reason. My heart needs to be changed. And it takes more than words and conversation to change it. So Hebrews says that God disciplines us, and he disciplines us because we are sons. Now, what does that mean? I don't want you to think, hey, what about daughters? In the Greco-Roman world, I'll come, to, I'll come back to it, don't worry. It was common for people to have illegitimate children, and their only responsibility to those children was financial. Um, so they would provide financially, but that was it. Those kids did not have full rights as sons. 
And they were not actively raised by the illegitimate father. But a legitimate son was being trained and mentored, actively brought up. And the training could be very, very demanding. There would be tutoring and mentorship to teach the son, this is what you need to take over. Because sons were heirs. Sons would carry the legacy, carry the family name, carry the family affairs, run the family business. And that meant they needed to be disciplined. They needed to be trained so they could fulfill that role. So when Hebrew says God treats us like sons and he's addressing men and women, do you realize what a radical statement that would be in the Greco-Roman world where daughters were second class for him to say men and women are both sons, are both full heirs who take over the family's business who are in the father's house being prepared to take over the father's business. Equal value and worth in God's family. And so whatever we experience in life, especially pain, God is disciplining us, rearing us, nurturing us because we are his sons in that full sense of the word. And that story, when we take hold of it, will transform our suffering. So I recently was talking with a friend from an Eastern religious background, and, um, and they asked me how my faith affects everyday life. And so I, I said, my faith provides a storyline for how I experience everything. And I, and I told this story. When our oldest son was like a year and a half, he uh, twisted his ankle. And uh, so I ended up carrying him essentially nonstop for like 48 hours. And that was the beginning of two years of lower back pain. I think, right? That was the straw that literally broke my back, um, carrying him for 48 hours. And so this person asked, ah, did you think you were being punished? Because that was the story that made sense to them. And I said, no, 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 absolutely not. The back pain was a tangible, physical reminder that all of life is about being poured out and service for others, right? And life is worth living because the fundamental truth of being a Christian is that God poured out his life for us, painfully to him for us. God became human and suffered at the cross to pour out his life for us. And my back pain was a reminder that all of my life is to be poured out for others. And when we live that way, when we do that, we're getting in touch with the fundamental reality of the universe, so it was the best form of discipline, not punishment. God bore our burdens. God took on our pain. And, you know, the back pain was still really annoying, right? I was younger than I am now, right? And the doctor was like, well, probably just going to have back pain for the rest of your life. Get used to it. I was like, I'm 30-something. Like, that's not... But do you see how that narrative, and if I had it for the rest of my life, it's gone, thankfully. But, you know... Do you see how that narrative transforms the way you experience it? All right, and furthermore, I would never have really learned the lesson that all of life is about pouring yourself out at pain to yourself because God poured himself out, poured out his life the way I did, if not for that pain. Right? The pain made the truth real. I mean, I knew it, right? We all know that, right? But it was just active day to day, moment to moment, made that truth real. It was discipline. Now, that doesn't mean we always or ever 
understand why we're being disciplined. Okay, so think about it. If you've ever had to discipline a two-year-old, how often do they respond with, this is a, total, a real quote, um, oh, wise and compassionate mother and father, I see that deep in my heart is foolishness. I see that if left unchecked, I'll become a brute beast and the world will treat me so. I see clearly right now that you are bringing this particular pain into my life so that I will not continue in this way. Thank you, thank you, oh magisterial brightness, for your great wisdom in correcting me, correcting my heart in this way. I was in a mood, so I asked my kids, have you ever said this to me? And Gregory responded, no, and we never will. Right? That doesn't happen because you as a parent have more perspective than the two-year-old. Right? You see more of reality than the two-year-old. Or maybe your 15-year-old or 18-year-old or, you know, some of you know. Um, right? You can see the need for course correction. You can see the future results of that course correction uh, because you're wiser and more experienced. There's a distance between you and your child. Now... How much more do you think is the distance between you and the infinite, all-loving, all-knowing, all-wise God who created all things? Right? If your two-year-old can't understand why you are disciplining him, why should you be able to expect all the time what God is doing? I mean, this is hard, right? We have to ma- maintain the perspective that God is good. God is good. And that God is treating us as a perfect father... And that means God's discipline will rarely make sense. And that's a feature, not a flaw. Right? It's what we should expect if we're dealing with God and not like our spiritual peer and equal. Okay? So when you don't understand what God's doing, good. That means God's higher than you. So why does God discipline us? What is God training us for? Well, Hebrews says he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So what is the fruit of righteousness? Well, righteousness here means God's judicial verdict of approval. God is disciplining us to make us into what we've always been meant to be. The gift of God, the good news of the gospel, is that by grace, God looks at you in Jesus and he says, you are approved. We've already received the verdict, but you aren't yet what you're meant to be. The fruit of that verdict will come. You will share in holiness. You will be defined by love, compassion, courage, and strength. But it takes discipline for God's verdict of approval to bear fruit. But it will. You grow in holiness by deep dependence on the verdict you've already received. So in theological terms, your sanctification follows from your justification. It's not like, all right, I'm forgiven by grace, but now I'm going to be sanctified by working hard. Your sanctification 
grows out of deeper and deeper, deeper dependence on God's verdict that he's given you. And God's discipline is the pruning that brings the fruit. Um, I recently was struggling, having, you know, something in my life was really hard, and I was tempted to just disengage. I was like, this is enough. I can't handle this anymore. And um, I had dinner with my good buddy Chris, and he said to me, the fact that you're suffering, you know, proves that God wants you to be there. Because your calling in life is not to have a comfortable life. That's not God's will for your life. In fact, if you weren't suffering, you would know that God didn't want you there. If it was too easy, you're in the wrong place. And you know what? If God gave you an option, do you want it to be harder or easier? You would choose harder. It's like, yeah, harder is better. (laughs) Now you might be thinking, okay, I see that life is a race with an end. I see that I have a champion that gets me there. And I see that my promised suffering has a, has a purpose and discipline, but why should I go through with it? Because not everybody needs to run a marathon, right? Most of us can live without the runner's high. You don't need to be an Ironman triathlete. Most of us, the agony is more than we can handle, we think. So why should we go through with the agony? Especially when we could just back out, avoid the suffering, shirk back like these people were tempted to. The reason you should run the race is almost identical to the reason that Jesus did. So Hebrews tells us that we're to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus experienced the agony of the cross for joy. Jesus ran the race for the joy that was waiting for him at the end. Okay, well, what was it? What joy did he not have until he experienced the agony of the cross? He had always existed in perfect unity with God the Father, God the Spirit. All things were created by him and through him and for him. What joy did he lack? You. Jesus went to the cross despising its shame for you. So he could reclaim you. So he could forgive you. So he could buy you back. Jesus went through the agony for the joy of calling you his son his daughter, his beloved. His joy was a restored and redeemed relationship with you. He forgave you so that he could sing over you. You are approved. You are beloved. You are my delight. You are my joy. And the joy awaiting you at the other side of this race is God. The joy waiting for us is a restored, redeemed relationship with the eternal, all-loving, all-powerful creator of heaven and earth. If Jesus went through the agony of the cross for a relationship with fallen humans, how much more should we run the race for the joy of a perfect relationship with God? After all, 
He ran the race to have you.